and uh, we will see what it does to apply to our families and our work situations and to our local church. Number one, the historical background to the psalm. Now, as you can see, this particular psalm has no inspired superscription. So we actually do not know the historical background to this psalm. And so I would have to say this. This psalm is timeless and it is universal. This is a psalm for today. This is a psalm you can take with you right now and walk home and use it and apply it when you leave here. It applies to any situation where people live and work together. It applies to families, applies to churches, mission organizations, ministries, and it applies to society at large. One of the awful consequences of sin entering into the world and Adam and Eve's sin is that we are creatures of war. The first sin recorded after Adam and Eve's sin was that Cain killed his brother Abel, and we have been killing each other ever since. When Jacob and Esau were in the womb of their mother, they were fighting for preeminence in the womb. Warfare is a big problem. When Time Magazine did its 60th anniversary issue, it tried to use one word to describe the past 60 years in the 20th century. Now, I thought they would use something like biology or technology. The one word they used was warfare. Over 125 million people senselessly killed in war. In fact, the 20th century was called the century of the dictators. When George Verwer, who is the founder of Operation Mobilization, and I would have to say to you one of the best-traveled preachers in the world. I just read the other night to some friends his next month's travel schedule, and we all just about fell off our chairs. He speaks in over 400 churches a year, circles the globe a number of times throughout the year. In a Q&A time, when asked about what he sees in churches, since he visits so many churches, he said this, to see a church at peace is an oasis in a desert. This is a psalm for today. We have an institution in New York City called the United Nations. It's anything but united. In fact, in the one thing it is united, it's sin, it will not be able to unite. Now let's look at the structure of the psalm. That's the historical background, its relevance to us. The structure of the psalm. The structure of this psalm is very easy. Verse 1 presents the major theme to us, and that is the goodness and beauty of Unity. Verses 2 and 3 are two illustrations to illustrate the main theme. Now, David was not only a great warrior and a great king, he was a great teacher. And like all good teachers, he knows the importance of illustration. And so he gives you his theme, and then in verse 2 and 3, he will illustrate it with two illustrations. Number 3, the theme of the psalm. The theme of the psalm, and that is the goodness and the beauty of unity. There are two key words. Good is our first key word. How good is unity? Now, the word good means something intrinsically valuable, something of quality and of excellence in itself. Unity is a virtue of great quality. The second word depending on your translation, pleasant or beautiful. 
This emphasizes the outward aspect of unity. It's attractive, it's beautiful, its appearance is something you actually would like to observe. And so the psalm begins with a trumpet blast. Behold! Look! Stop! Pause! Gaze! Study! Whenever you see unity, look at it! Wonder! How did they achieve this? Spurgeon wrote, it's a wonder seldom seen, therefore behold it. When you see unity, ask yourself important questions. How did they achieve this unity? When you see a family at peace, study that family. There was a man in our church, he had six children. They all were well-adjusted children, all very involved in the church. And we had just little children at the time, four little children. And so I took him out to lunch and I said, tell me your secrets as a father for raising your family. I want to know. I wanted to behold unity. I want to observe it and study it. And so I asked him questions. And he gave me invaluable advice that we carried on in our family from that point on. When you see a church living in harmony, find out how did they do this? Ask them. I was just in the Dominican Republic for two weeks and I was with a missionary there and I said, how is it that these churches have such unity among them and the national leaders all seem to be such dear friends? And the man said this to me, all of our national leaders, our prominent teachers are stable men and they've brought a stability to the work and a unity to the work. So I asked questions. I wanted to behold it. When you see a nation at rest, ask yourself, what are the principles that have guided this nation that it has unity? So many nations are just fractured. Tanks running throughout the streets, people killing one another, stealing from one another. Behold it. Look at it. Study it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Now the two illustrations. Verses 2 and 3. Let's read verse 2 again. Psalm 133. Behold how good, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now that's the main theme right there. That's the main point. He's made his point. First illustration. It is like. It is like. Unity is like the precious oil on the head coming down upon the beard. On the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, as Gentiles, we read that illustration and we go, that's unity? It doesn't even make sense to me. I was reading this psalm one time and I saw this young lady sitting in the front row and she had a big, big smile on her face and I said, now what are you laughing at? And she said, my, that oil would run down your head fast. Well, we excommunicated her. <laughs> what is it about the oil upon the head, running down upon the beard, upon his clothes, that illustrates the beauty and the goodness of unity? Well, Mo, uh, David is reaching back and he is looking at that sacred moment in Israel's history when Aaron and his sons were placed into the priesthood and the entire nation was gathered together some two million people. 
And Moses took the holy oil and he poured it upon Aaron's head. It ran over his head, down his beard, all over the holy garments and the holy stones. And that scent went up into the air and the whole nation was just at that moment united under that holy oil. Leviticus 8.12 says this, Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him and consecrated him. Now this oil was a sacred special oil. This oil was made and manufactured at God's own direction. We're given these directions in Exodus chapter 30, verse 22 and 23. The ingredients to this very special ointment was liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, sweet cinnamon, 250 shekels. I'm giving you the secret now. Sweet calamus or cane, an aromatic cane, 250 shekels. Cassius, 500 shekels. And it was blended together with a hin of oil, olive oil, in perfect proportions. The finest spices were used to prepare this oil. Now, gentlemen, I realize that maybe you have just missed Valentine's Day. And your wife is waiting to tell you, you missed this. But you cannot buy this oil, this perfume oil for your wife on Valentine's Day. And you cannot buy it for her at Christmas time. This oil was a special, unique oil made only for the holy objects of the tabernacle and for worship. If you were to take this oil and you were to use it for any mundane or just common use, you would be cut off from the children of Israel. That's how serious it was to profane this oil. It was used for anointing the sacred objects of worship for the tabernacle, and it was used to anoint the high priest and to anoint his clothing and place him into his sacred holy office. And that beautiful perfume oil went up. It scented all of these holy objects, and God smelled this perfume, and he was pleased and satisfied. It was holy. It was sacred unto God. Now, that's the first point. Unity is a holy thing. Unity is like the holy oil upon the head of Aaron. Unity is sacred. It is special. It is not something common in this world. And thus, it is to be guarded and protected and treated as holy. Let's look at the opposite. Disunity. Disunity is an unholy thing. It's destructive. It ruins families. It ruins churches and nations. And Satan is the sower of discord. He's the master of division. He loves to divide people. And churches are his special object. And we're so helpful to him in this area. In Proverbs chapter 6, we have the list of the seven deadly sins, seven abominations to God. The first of those seven sins is people with lofty eyes. In other words, the first of the seven deadly sins is pride. The last of the seven deadly sins is this, Proverbs 6.19. One who spreads strife among brothers. Listen to that again. 
Focus on these words carefully. One who spreads strife among brothers and sisters. And yet when you look at the Old Testament, we see throughout the entire Old Testament history of the people of God, we see strife. We see Cain killing Abel. We see Jacob and Esau. We see Joseph and his brothers, his brothers cruelly in petty jealousy trying to bury their brother and then just to sell him or to kill him. We see Saul and his madness trying to kill David and spear a wonderful gift from God to his kingdom. We see Israel divided into the north and the south, warring within itself. In the New Testament, we see fighting in nearly every single New Testament church. We think of the church at Corinth, almost seceding from the other churches, not even wanting Paul to return to them again. My dear brothers and sisters, this is the plague of sin. Division, fighting, whether it's in our homes or whether it's in our nation or in our churches, we are creatures of fighting and of war. So I want to say to you this morning, unity is like the holy oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Unity is holy It is totally special. Never, never treat it commonly. The interesting thing is this. The importance of this psalm is that you can be the sower of discord. Don't look around right now and elbow someone or say, Oh God, please be prayed. I just hope those brothers and sisters listen to what he's saying. This applies to you. Don't look around at anyone else. The next time you pick up the phone and you're talking to another believer, remember this. Unity is like the holy oil. It is holy. It is a sacred thing. The next time you are making accusations against a person and you don't have all the facts, remember, unity is a holy thing. We used to have in our little community a Bible study for Christian men. On a Saturday morning, it does not exist anymore. And at that study, there were certain people, prominent people, who got the study started and sort of over uh, saw the, the study. And one of them was a lawyer, and he would most Saturdays slip out early. One man very insultingly said, well, he thinks he's a big shot. He's got to leave before everyone else. He thinks he's so important. Now, that was a brother's judgment. He made sure everyone knew his judgment. There was a reason he left Saturday morning and left early. is because for 35 years his wife had MS. And he had to race home and he had to get her up and he had to dress her and wash her and feed her and do everything for her. And then he had to go to work. Now, what a terrible thing this man said about another brother. Didn't even know what he was talking about. And yet we do this all the time. We make accusations, we make judgments, and we pass them around as if it's the truth. How often I have heard statements about another brother or sister that are so false, but they're passed around based on reliable information. One time at a prayer meeting in our city, a certain Christian organization, a person stood up in the prayer meeting in front of about a hundred men and said, please pray for Alex and Marilyn Strauch. They have just separated. 
Now, there's my wife over there. Who would ever separate from such a beautiful woman? And I'm not blind. One of the people at the meeting, only one, picked up the phone immediately and called me and said, Alex, how are things going? I said, all right. He said, is there any problem? I said, well, just the normal problems of life. He said, how are you and Marilyn doing? I said, we're doing okay. He said, I just heard that you and Marilyn separated. I said, well, hold it a second. Marilyn, have we separated? (laughs) No, we haven't separated. He said, some guy just got up in the meeting here and said, you and Marilyn have separated. I said, well, find out who that is and let's get to the bottom of that. Do you know we could never get to the bottom of that where it came from? But it came, he said, from reliable sources. Reminds me of a story of a man walking down the street. He sees his brother and he says, oh, I heard you died. Well, he says, you can see I'm quite alive. He says, no, but I heard it on reliable sources. (laughs) Unless you have heard from the people themselves, you have no reliable sources. I've been told by my own colleagues, my own family of things of other people that are false. Most of the time it's false or distorted in some way or twisted in some way. I want to remind you, the next time you make an accusation, pass a story on about someone else. Unity is a holy thing. Next time you pass on information, remember, unity is like the holy oil. The next time you lash out in your anger and self-justification because I've been hurt, remember, unity is like the precious oil. D.E. Host was the successor to Hudson Taylor, the China Inland Mission, and he was asked in a Q&A time, what is one of the most... Difficult problems you face in a mission. At that time, one of the largest missions in the world, almost a thousand missionaries in the interior of China, which when Hudson Taylor started the mission was never supposed to happen. And D.E. Host said this. He was a godly man. A biography was written on him called D.E. Host, A Prince with God. It's a wonderful biography. And D.E. Host said, the problem we face in a mission like ours is tail-bearing. Missionaries passing on stories about other missionaries, and they are not true. They're half-truths. They're out-out falsehoods. Tailberry. And Proverbs makes it clear, tales and gossip is like dainty morsels. We love it, and it goes down so well. Just remember, the next time you're passing on a story, unity is a holy thing. Now, the second thing, there are a number of things illustrated here, is that unity begins at the head. First, it's holy. Second, it begins at the head. This is a major point. Now, in the psalm, it's Jerusalem. When there's unity in Jerusalem, the king, the priests, the elders, that unity spreads throughout the whole nation. But the point is still well taken. It begins at the head. We are told in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petition and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all those in authority. We are to pray for the unity of those who are at the head of our nation. The church is to do this. This is a, a command to the local church. It's one of the functions of the local church. To pray for those in authority. It is not easy leading a nation. Unity begins at the head. The humorous story told of Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States, but he also served as vice president. And he tells that when he was vice president, he just loved the job of vice president. And he had so many friends. He was able to accomplish much, he felt. And then he became president of the United States. 
He says that when he became president of the United States, he lost every single friend, and he couldn't believe how many people hated him. He actually has a statement, I only read it recently, when he says that when he finally stepped down as president, he felt he was like a slave that had had his chains broken, and he was so happy. It is not easy leading a government, whether it's the state of Texas or your county or your city mayor or whether it's the president of the United States. We as a local church are commanded, first of all, let prayers be made on behalf of all men, especially those in leadership. Let us pray for those who are leading our country now. They need the prayers of the people of God. I know we love to complain about our government, but I want to remind you, we don't have tanks running up and down the street. We don't have all of our money just winding up in Swiss banks accounts, and there's nothing for us. We have a great deal of peace and freedom, prosperity in this great land. Then let's pray for the Christian home. God has appointed the man, the head of the home. That's God's divine plan. Don't Fool with that plan and don't turn it on its head. God has said in Ephesians 5.25 that the man is the head of the home as Christ is the head of the church. We need to pray for our homes and the heads of our homes. This is a prayer we should have regularly. Christian homes are unraveling. They're, they're breaking apart at record pace. Such hatred and division and screaming and yelling in the home. And the little children sit and listen to this madness. And then finally the breaking of the home. Children left without a father. It's just so common today. One man said to me, it's not a big deal anymore. Ask the children if it's a big deal. Let's pray for the heads of our home. And then the heads of our church, our elders. It's not easy being an elder. You make this decision and that group gets mad at you. You don't make that decision and that group's mad at you. It doesn't matter what you decide or what you do. Somebody is mad at you. Somebody is going to leave the church. There they go. I told you. The best thing you can do for your elders is regularly pray for them. Regularly. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13 says, We need to love them for their work's sake. Now, no elders are perfect. They're all quite imperfect. And they make some pretty dumb judgments. And sometimes they do things that aren't real smart. What they need is your encouragement and your prayer support. And say, how can I help? People are very quick to criticize, very quick to shoot off letters or emails. and You get a phone call from some irate person. Pray for them first. So the first teaching of this psalm is that unity is holy and unity begins at the head. Now the second illustration is in verse 3. It's very similar to the first one. I've only picked two applications of verse 2. There are more applications, but our time only allows for two. The second illustration, similar to the first, is in verse 3. Unity is like, unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon is known for its copious dews in a hot Mediterranean climate, dew and rain and snow 
They are so important. Mount Hermon is in the north, Jerusalem and Zion is in the south, and so we see a connection of the nation here. Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet. It's at a mountain range of about 16 miles. And it's essential for the pasture land and for the grass and the streams to have these copious dews come upon the mountain and to add humidity to spread throughout the nation, to bring life and, and uh, growth, vigoration, refreshment. Now, here in Dallas, you may not know too much about this, but if you live in the arid parts of the United States, you know exactly what this psalm is saying. If you were to drive into Colorado from Route 70 or Route 80, when you come into Colorado, you, you will see this real big sign. And the sign says, you've probably all seen it, Colorful Colorado. And then for the next three hours or four, there's only one color. Brown. One color. And you say, where's all the color? It's in the mountains. It's not on the plains because the plains don't get much water. They look for irrigation. And then once you cross the mountains to California, then you'll see desert. The mountains capture all the dew, and mountains capture the rain and all the snows. And without that snow upon the mountain, we're all, the whole West is in serious, serious trouble. And then that moisture is eventually delivered to the nation. It's very important for the sheep and for the pastures and for the, the livelihood of the nation to have that moisture. Well, unity is like the moisture. It's like the refreshing snow, the refreshing rain and the dew. And then it comes from Mount Hermon. It comes all the way down to Zion, blessing the nation. Now, David knew a lot about the importance of this refreshing dew of Hermon because he was a man of peace. He really was, although he was involved in many wars, when he became king of Israel, he saw the, the devilishness of disunity. Israel was divided into the north and the south. In the north was the king Ishbosheth and his general with Abner. And in the south was David and with his general Joab. Here we have God's people divided with two kings. And the Philistines basically had taken over much of the north after Saul's death. And, and, and Israel was weak and vulnerable. And when David became king, he brought the whole nation together. And he drove back those Philistines and he brought the ark into Jerusalem and he united the nation in worship around the ark in Jerusalem. And he organized the priesthood and he had them singing and he brought a joy and he brought life back to Israel. He knew the importance of unity. He wrote this psalm. Oh, how good, he said. How beautiful it is when the children of God live together in unity. He knew this from personal experience. He's not just writing a poem. It's good and it's blessed to see God's people together. And now the conclusion, the conclusion of this lovely psalm is this. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing from Jerusalem, from Zion, life forever. God had placed his name in Jerusalem. The ark was there. The priesthood was there. The sacrifices, 
the, the, the true and living God's presence was there and it was to be a light to all the polytheistic nations all around who knew not our God. It was to be a place of, of light and truth going out to the nations. It was so important that Jerusalem was in unity and the nation was in unity. It had a work for the nations. It had a word for the nations. It had the law of God for the nations. It had the witness of the one and only true God. All other gods were false. They were just worthless idols. How important it was that the nation would be one and would be that light that it needed to be. What a terrible travesty when God's people were divided and weak and vulnerable to any force around. How does this apply to us today? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we read, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. We are in the household of God today. We are in the family of God today, which is the church. He's the church of the living God. We're the congregation of a living God, not a moon or a sun, not some immovable force, some power, some idea. He's a living personal, infinite being God. We're the congregation of the living God. But notice the last thing said about the church, the pillar and the support of the truth. First Timothy three fifteen. My dear friends, from this place, from this place goes out a message. This is the pillar and the support of the truth. This place right here. And what is that truth? Well, the next verse tells us it's Christ coming into this world in the flesh, raised, died in heaven, exalted at God's right hand. It's not the University of Texas that is the pillar in support of truth. It's not the government of Texas that is the pillar in support of the truth. It's not your scientific institutions that are the pillar and the support of the truth. It's the local church that is the pillar and support of the truth of the gospel. We should love the gospel. It's all about a wonderful person named the Lord Jesus Christ and there's no one else like him. We are the light and the mouthpiece of that gospel. So often when we read the newspaper or, or magazines, it seems that Washington is where it's at, or Moscow, or Baghdad, or London. These are the important places. This is where it's happening. No, my friends, what is happening upon the planet right now is the building of the body of Christ. And until that point, as he adds members to that body... Until that point, he holds back his judgment, but his judgment is coming upon this wicked, sinful, blood-soaked earth. It is coming upon this earth. We have the most important message, life forevermore. That is the gospel, eternal life, sins forgiven. There is no more important message. Now do you see why we must be in unity? Because the gospel really... The verifying data of the gospel is us as we live together. We're the proof of the gospel, his people living together, working together. Really, evangelism is a corporate activity. It's not just an individual activity. Every missionary out there needs a whole network of support and financial support and prayer support and love support. No one witnesses the gospel all alone. When people want to know the truth of the gospel, they see the people of God. 
I heard of a report one time by a major Christian organization looking back in its history how most people came to Christ through this organization. And they said this, most came to Christ when they came into the gathering of the Lord's people, saw the Lord's people, saw Christian gathering, saw how Christians lived together, and the message had so much more power. We're the verifying data of the power of the gospel. That's why we must be in unity. We can't grow without unity. All the finer graces of the little children, the Sunday school, they need to know we're in unity. When a church is divided, everyone's grumbling, there's suspicion, there's gossip. And do you know those little children, they're so smart, they've got a special little antenna in back of their head, and boop, it pops up like that. They go, oh, there must be problems in the church. I just heard Dad on the phone. There's some trouble brewing in the church. They know it right away. But when there's unity and love, the children grow. The Sunday schools grow. People can flourish. People can grow. They can use their gift. They're not at each other's throat, cutting each other's head off for the glory of God. Now, you understand, I'm not talking peace or unity at any price. The truth of the gospel is what unites us. I would assume you would understand that. But much of our division is not about the gospel. It is about personality clashes, about what programs should we use. Most divisions are really petty and unnecessary. Certainly, we stand for the gospel and we will not compromise for unity's sake the gospel or the great truths or the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. We cannot or we have no unity at that point anyway. Children of Israel were divided because of their own wicked sin. That's why they were divided. Their own evil ways and disobedience to the things of God. And so many of our divisions are, are rooted just in just basic, petty, selfish, prideful sins. We need this unity to grow. We need this unity to flourish. We need this unity to be the kind of witness here in Texas that we need to be. It is good. It is a beautiful thing when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like the holy oil upon the beard coming down over, over those holy garments and just uniting the nation together. It is like the refreshing dew, like the moisture in the air that just invigorates and brings life to everything. It's a very important story told. I'm going to tell you this story in, in my conclusion. It's the story of Anatoly Sharensky. Now, Anatoly Sharensky today is a politician in Israel. He wrote a book just about five years ago that our own president read and was very much touched by. But Anatoly Sharensky was 11 years in a Siberian internal exile in, in Russia. And while he was there in exile, Ronald Reagan worked with Mikhail Gorbachev for his release from his interior prison. And when Anatoly Sharensky was actually released from Russia, nearly every Western reporter was there as he crossed into West Germany. He was told by the Russian guard, just walk a straight line to the gate. And he walked back and forth like this, so defiant to them. Very courageous man. When he was released, of course, the reporters all surrounded him and were asking all kinds of questions. And Ronald Reagan received many praises for this release. And so did Mikhail Gorbachev. 
when he was talking to the Western press, someone asked him this question. We heard that you were willing to die for your little Psalter, the little book of Psalms. He said, oh, yes. He told the story of how the Russian guard took his little Psalter, his little book of Psalms, took it away from him. And Anatoly Sharensky threw himself on the Siberian snow. Now, this is one cold place. None of the sissy stuff here. 42 degrees and we're all going to stay home and start a fire. Maybe 42 below zero would be better. People can't come to church because it's so cold out right now. The guard took his Bible away and he threw himself down in the Siberian snow and refused to get up until he got his Psalter back. Now, that's one courageous man. Finally, the Russian guard took the Psalter and just threw it into the snow. And Anatoly Sharansky brushed it off and put it in his pocket and went back. He was asked by another reporter, what was your favorite psalm? Oh, he said, my favorite psalm was Psalm 133. How good, how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. But then he explained why it was his favorite song. He said, the one thing communism cannot stand is solidarity among people. They do everything in their power to divide and smash and divide people and keep them against one another and in fear. But every night we gathered around a little light bulb, our whole barrack, and we would then, as a group of men, Read the Psalms together. And reading the Psalms every night united our hearts. We stood with one another. We supported one another. We loved one another. And we were prepared to die for one another. And the one thing those communists couldn't take is that we were together and we weren't going to let them break us apart. And it was our Psalter that kept us together. How good, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. They are so powerful when they're together. They can accomplish so much. They can hold one another up. They can protect one another. But most important, they stand against the enemy, the sower of discord, Satan himself, who divides the people of God and crushes our light. Spurgeon wrote, Oh, for more of this rare virtue... Not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells. Not that spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together. Not that mind which is all about debate and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. From this place, very few people even know you're here. From this place goes out a message. Life forevermore. I don't know most of you. Do you know the message, life forevermore, the gospel of eternal life, sins forgiven, the promise that you will live in the presence of God for eternity? My dear friends, there is nothing on this earth more important than knowing you have eternal life and your sins are forgiven and you have peace with God and you are placed in the family of God and you are saved for eternity. There is nothing more important. And when you face death and you will face it, there is a cemetery plot for you. You will say, I have eternal life. That's our message. Life forevermore. It is the truth 
of God. It is the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And from this place goes out a message. And we must be together in this message and proclaim it together in a united voice. Christ died for our sins. If you will believe, you will be saved. If you will turn to him and call to him, he will save you. And for our families to live in unity, for our fathers and mothers to live in unity, for our nation to be in unity, let us pray for the holy oil and for the refreshing dew. Will you stand with me? And I'm going to have you respond to my message now in private prayer. And I want you right now before the Lord, if there is something you have, maybe against another brother or sister, you're angry, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, well, join the human race, my friends. I want you to ask for forgiveness for that. Or anything that's causing division in your household, will you just pray about that right now and deal with the Lord? Will you make this a matter of prayer now for the unity of your home? For the unity on the workplace? Will you pray for the unity of our country and for our leaders? They need your prayers desperately. We will not know till we get to heaven what our prayers did for this earth. Will you regularly and consistently and persistently pray for your elders? They need your prayers. Will you pray for this church? Will you see that Satan does not use you to divide this church? Lord Father, help us to these ends. We need your help. At heart, we are a divisive, warlike people. We are a selfish, jealous heady people. We are prepared to defend our egos. We are selfish at heart. We are self-justifying. May we be peacemakers, blessed of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be those like David who could see the beauty and the goodness and the attractiveness of unity. May we understand it is a holy thing. It is a refreshing, life-giving thing. To these ends, we ask your help. Amen.